Hello everyone, on this episode of Behind the MD, we'll be talking about life as a black man in medicine, what it means, the challenges, and hopes for the future, so stay tuned. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Behind the MD. Um, <laughs> I have here with me an amazing, oh my god, I can't believe you made this time, I'm so happy, an amazing, amazing friend, clinician, fellow, former chief resident, one of my all-time favorite people here at Vanderbilt. This is Dr. Lee Richardson. Just go ahead and introduce yourself. I am yourself. blushing now because <laughs> I definitely did not deserve that intro. Yes, you did. Of course, I made time for this. I was just excited to hang out with you. What everyone didn't get to hear is us chatting about fellowship, yeah. life, fun, church, all sorts of stuff beforehand. So it's awesome seeing you and catching up. It's our first time seeing each other I since know. July 1. Has your July started out okay? My July has been good. It's been good. Good. It's always like a chill start for me because I'm on consults. And nice. so I'm just watching my other colleagues. I'm on consults as well, but I wouldn't call my start a chill start as the cardiology fellow on Gen Consults. Yeah. But it's been a lot of fun. So I've really enjoyed it so far. Okay. Uh, I feel like it's a lot like intern year where maybe I don't recognize how much I'm actually learning. I'm okay. sure I am, but I feel like I'm just writing a lot of notes sure you are. a lot of pages, but it's been a lot of fun. And I also loved walking back into a building and actually having Wi-Fi as soon as I stepped into it. We didn't get that at the VA all year. Oh yeah, sure. Year, so. I forgot about that. Dude, I was always dude. using my phone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was always using my phone in there. Oh my, you are saved from the VA. Yes. Oh my God. Yeah, oh, I'm good. so happy felt, for you. good to be back at the big house. <laughs> so happy for you. I mean, Lee, I have to say, you know, I remember like we worked together in August last year. Yep. You were so excited, so full of life. You were less excited by the end. Did you feel the same way after like a whole year at the VA? I, you know, it's funny because a couple people said that they noticed that. That, where I still felt I was pretty exuberant and pretty excited, uh, but but I think there was definitely some fatigue. Yeah. The, so how much of that was from the VA or from sleepless nights uh, mm. hanging out with my new baby? Oh, that's uh, true. Okay, yeah. Oh, that's so true. That, that's that true. That definitely kept me up a lot because my daughter was born in March. But nonetheless, I loved Chief Year. We had uh, obviously a very challenging year for everyone mm -hmm. with COVID, but um, what kept me coming to work every day was how impressive the residents were and just how much fun they were to work with how much they care about each other and the patients. And yeah. so I think it's a year that uh, we don't want to repeat, but we certainly never will forget. I would just like to say that I think I was the most impressive resident you work with. You were far and away the most impressive resident. Thank you. Residents, no. beware. <laughs> <laughs> I don't pick favorites often at a solo, mm. but I'll display it on public display. Thank you. Thank you. Wow, guys. <laughs> this should go into my letter of recommendation. At least one of them. Can you upload audio files into your ERS application? I feel like you should. Yeah. Someone should look into that for the future. But yeah, so give us like a one-liner summary about yourself. Who are you? What are you about? What do you want the world to know about you? Yeah, so I'd say I'm a happy-go-lucky guy. I agree Very with that. Very proud Kentuckian. So I'm from Nicholasville, Kentucky. Uh, the oldest of three boys. All of us have meandered now to Nashville. They are our, he they're all training. here. I know, we're they're all here. We're part of the traffic problem. <laughs> we're the big issue that all of us Kentuckians traveling down here. All the Richardson brothers yeah, just holding up like a lot. 20 line. cars at once. No, it's bad. Um, but I consider myself so lucky to be here and have trained here for MedPeds. I did a chief year and now I'm sticking on as a cardiology fellow. Uh, also very supportive with, uh, with my family. My dad mm -hmm. was in medicine. Uh, my wife is in medicine, uh, and I have a beautiful new daughter. As yeah. I mentioned, she turns four months old this week, so oh time is flying. I know it's 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 been a blast, but we we were super stoked to stay in Nashville, and I've loved fellowship so far. That's good. I'm so happy that you like me. Time in what has to be a very busy 
schedule for you, like new beginnings for a lot of different things, new baby, new fatherhood, yes. new fellowship. And I'm just, I'm excited that you're here. I was yeah. like, we gotta, to be here. No, bring Lee here. Yeah. We have to. <laughs> it feels right. good. Like I said, this office, I will say, is much cleaner than Blake ever had, I feel like. So, uh, Greg, kudos, I will say. We're recording up in the Chief's office, and it is um, immaculate. I cannot speak for what Blake was doing here, so I'm going to I'm gonna be Netherland or like, what's it, Switzerland in the middle of all of this. Is it? I don't so now tell us, me, everyone, why did you choose medicine? You know, there's so many fields in life that you could go into. The know, world was your know, oyster. That's why right. medicine? I think, you know, I love asking this question to people who are in medical school, like medical students, because I think there's so many interesting paths people take. And I actually, if people would have asked me when I was a kid what I was going to be when I grew up, mm -hmm. I was going to say teacher. Okay. So I always wanted to be an I educator. I had great role models in that area. Both my grandpas on both sides were actually biology professors in college. Oh, okay. And so I really looked up and respected them a lot. My dad was a physician but had worked at an academic center as well. Okay. So I was like, God, these guys are awesome teachers. And I actually majored in Spanish. So started out as a Spanish major. Did not know did that. that. Yeah, did that all through college and I wanted to be a Spanish professor. So okay. studying like Caribbean, Afro-American literature in Central South America. Wow. And so I yeah, I look back at my little 30 page essay that I wrote at the end of senior year of college. I'm like, definitely could not do that now. <laughs> but it was it was so much fun. Okay. But I actually worked as an interpreter as a volunteer for a medical brigade uh, down in Ecuador okay. in between my sophomore and junior year of college. And I found that as I was there, it was fun being an interpreter, but instead of serving as the medium of communication, I wanted to actually be the provider giving tips, talking and explaining things to the patients. Because I found that some of the providers I worked with weren't always doing it in a culturally sensitive way or weren't necessarily explaining things how I wanted to explain things. Okay. But it was my job to just interpret, not necessarily to to change and, and say uh, what I thought should be said. Interesting. And okay. so. I thought that was really fascinating. I'd actually always loved science as well. I thought it was really interesting, but I went back and thought about it a lot and talked to my advisor and was like, hey, what do I need to do to get into med school? Hmm. He's like, A, you're crazy. B, we only got two years, so let's get you rolling. So okay. I got in, laid into like organic chemistry and some other courses Ooh. and stuff like that. Organic then, chemistry. I know, but eventually made it through and then went to Louisville for medical school. and was really torn also between medicine and pediatrics. And uh, because I was a little indecisive at the time, I said, why not do both? Yeah. So I ended up uh, going into med peds, which is how I, I'm most- Overachiever. City. <laughs> Overachiever. <laughs> yeah. That's an amazing story. Yeah. And I think a lot, you know, I, as I went through that discovery process and decision, a lot of it also was influenced based on my dad as okay. a role model. You know, he worked as a for a while as a private practice uh, general internist and spent time in Lexington, but also in our, our county or our small town in, in Nicholasville, Kentucky. Mm -hmm. And seeing, you know, I, it was funny whenever we go out to the mall or go to Walmart or do whatever, there'd be like 20 people that would stop and be like, Dr. Richardson, it's so good to see you. Like, thanks for taking care of my mom or thanks for helping out with this and seeing people's gratitude, but also seeing he he was an exceptionally hard worker, but he also prioritized family. Like he mm -hmm. was our little league coach. He came to all our games and would always be there for us. And so I felt that it was possible to strike a balance of being a clinician and um, being, a, being a good parent, but then also being a teacher. So a teacher yeah. maybe not only to med students in the future, but also to your patients. And so I felt like it was a, a perfect hybrid. And 
feel really lucky to have continued on that path and end up where I am now. Yeah. Okay, so before we kind of segue into this segment of the podcast, I just want to let you know some facts about medicine okay. and kind of where we're at. Okay. So the first thing is black men make up less than 3% of the entire physician population in the United States. In 1978, 3.1% of um, all the medical students were black males. In 2019, it was 2.9%. And if we did not have um, historically black colleges or universities, it will just be 2.4%. Something else I found, according to the Association of American Medical Colleges, which is WMC, In 1978, there were 1,410 black male applicants to medical school, and in 2014, there were just 1,337. In 1978, only 542 black men across the nation graduated from medical school. In 2014, it was even less, 515. That means each black male doctor that the field loses is unlikely to be replaced. Okay. So I think these are pretty profound facts about the reality of medicine, meaning there are not a lot of people that look like you. Mm-hmm. There are a lot less people like you that apply to medical school, and it seems like there are a lot less people like you that graduate from medicine, let alone continue throughout the journey. So I just wanted you to reflect and just give us insight of what does it mean to be a Black man in medicine in this day and age? Yeah, those are definitely pretty profound statistics that you shared. And a lot of them I had not actually heard or was cognizant of until I recently saw the film Black Men in White Coats, Mm -hmm. which I think was a really eye-opening. Things that you were aware, but you didn't know the numbers necessarily and how profound they were. I remember my one of my first days of medical school, I was actually there with my dad, who's a black man, and had gone to the same medical school, went to University of Louisville. So he showed me his graduation portrait which I don't think it was, I think you said 1978. I think my dad actually graduated in 1980. Okay. And I think there were three or four black people, men or women in his graduating class. And when I looked at my composite, there were five. Oh. So mm. in 40 years, not like many what, not many, not, not a, a big change in terms of representation of people yeah. of color. And I think when you sit, when you ask about people reflecting on, um, being a, a person of color in medicine, a lot of our experience also stems from when you're a child early on. And mm-hmm. you start, you know, it's ch- that was a, a huge reason why I love pediatrics is children are just so much fun and mm-hmm. so interesting. And I remember the, one of the first times I was really cognizant that I felt kind of different was with an experience I had with Brooks, my brother, mm-hmm. where we, this is I guess in like 99, 2000, so I was like eight or nine years old. And, uh, that was pre 9-11, so you actually to go visit either Canada or Mexico, we were planning a trip with our family to go to Mexico. Okay. You didn't have to have a passport as Uh-oh. a kid. If you're under 18, you just have to have a state-issued license. I did not know that. So we went down to the Justin County Clerk's office, and Brooks and I are there, and my mom was like running errands or something. She drops us off, and we're filling out the paperwork. And I remember sitting there and looking at the form, and it says, like, you need to select your race. And... As I was filling it out, a woman walked by and was like, oh, can I help you boys out? You guys need mm-hmm. any help? I was like, no, we should be good. And she's like, uh, no, you need, you have to choose one. Okay. And as someone whose dad is black and mom is white, I was like, well, no, I'm, I feel like I'm, I'm both black and white. And she's yeah. like, no, you have to choose. Hmm. Wow. And that like really stuck out to me that I was like, oh, how, 
here I am, I feel like as a, as a mixed man who feels both black and white. Yeah. Yet at that time, it was like, I almost felt neither. Like right. I, felt, I felt very different. Having that experience made me cognizant that, okay, I feel a little different than maybe a lot of my other peers. Yeah. And as I got into medical school, got, went through college, went through medical school, went through residency. One of the things I feel like I had to do was lean on other people who had maybe gone through similar experiences okay. or I could look up to. And that's why I felt so lucky talking with my dad. Yeah. Going, hearing his stories, being a black man in medicine. And that that's one of the big things I think, and I'm sure we'll discuss this later. Yeah. Like, what, what can we do? How can we improve <laughs> this? But I think that's, yeah, the one of the biggest things is the importance of mentorship. Yeah. So, but to answer your question, I feel like a, a, as a black man, a person of color in medicine, definitely proud, definitely, uh, excited but also i think motivated yeah and, and it's clearly those numbers if they don't serve as motivation then something's wrong because we we need to make a change yeah i feel like i've had obviously i'm not a black man <laughs> i'm a black woman but like for me my experience with race especially in the united states was just completely different because i grew up in a country where everyone looked like me mm -hmm. i was the majority yes. right and so I don't even know we ever had forms that had the option of race, yeah. you know, and I never, ever thought about the color of my skin till August 2010 when I first came here. You found all these different forms and you just like, oh, like, you know, you, you kind of have to always identify yourself. And then for me, my journey through like from undergrad to here is just realizing that I'm usually one of the very few minority in any situation. I'm an engineer for an undergrad, for undergrad. Yeah. There are not a lot of black people, there are not a lot of black women. There are not a lot of women in general. And then you find people that like, I know we're going to talk about this, mentor you and kind of pull you through. Yeah. And then now I think as I'm in medicine, our class or so my class in this residency program is very fortunate that we have so many black women yeah. that's the same situation for my like my medical school too where you know okay maybe there are like less than 10 of us are black majority of us are women and there are only two black men or three black men you know and so i kind of feel that my walk is definitely unique and different but i also see that there are just not a lot of people that look like you in the walls of the hospital and I acknowledge that and I'm just like, you know, always interested to hear like, you know, how your experience in medicine is it different from how I'm experiencing medicine because I think mm -hmm. there are certain things that I think are unique to me. Yes. But then I think we all collectively share certain plights that I can talk about a little yeah, bit later. Absolutely. But yeah. Some that we experienced at the VA together. Oh my gosh. Some that we <laughs> oh saw, yeah, together while yeah. we were on service and as a team. And no, you're totally right. That's something particularly as a chief resident I, I thought a lot about this year is how to support residents who experience not only these macroaggressions that are so like big and obvious, yeah. but little micro microaggressions that may seem subtle that I think has really come to light in the last year yeah. that people are recognizing that although they're subtle, they're so cumulative yeah. and can cause lots of damage, lots of harm, and just frankly like tiring. It's just like, come on. <laughs> it's just so, and, and that's something, you know, is uh, at the VA, I didn't even think a whole lot about until this year with yeah. the experience of women providers who are there that it, just a lot of our, our women in the residency program came and spoke to me about some of the things they were dealing with. I can tell like, you things that I were can't. happening on a daily basis. I know, it's just... On a daily basis, it was like multiple. And then you get to this point, you're like, you know what, we're only doing two weeks. <laughs> and yeah. I'm going to leave this place.
you brought up this documentary. Yeah. You offered it to the residency yes, yeah. program to watch. Because I actually do have some thoughts that I didn't intentionally come to the debriefing session because I had a uh, some thoughts about it. Yeah. So the documentary was called Black Men in White Coats. Yeah, it's a great film that I was exposed to earlier this year, actually from some of the people at Penn that I had talked with you about earlier, okay. where I, I think the film, what it does is it d dives into this problem and serves as a nice narrative and summary of there are very, very few black men in white coats, tries to address the historical context of how it's happened, mm -hmm. why it's happened, and then what are some of the things that can be done about it. And okay. And so a lot of it uh, centers around Dr. Dale, who's a physician that's down in Texas, I believe, yeah. affiliated with UT Southwestern, who has a, a very impressive and robust blog and also a great community of advocates who are really working hard to get more black men in mm -hmm. white coats. And this film, again, serves as a, a nice narrative and summary of the issue and what are the next steps, what are the things that we can do to make it better. Yeah. And so I thought it, you, you know, it's, I think, a, a very provocative film in mm -hmm. that you watch it and it, there are definitely some emotional parts and there are a lot of things that I think again people may have been cognizant of or recognized but didn't, don't know the numbers don't know the history yeah. don't know the stats and how big of an impact this is actually having on health care uh, particularly health of the black community Correct. and how are things we can change with which was highlighted so much during the COVID pandemic of the disproportionate uh, effect of COVID on a lot of the minority communities. Yeah. yeah. I think one thing that I really like latched onto during like that documentary was just how much of uh, mentorship, how mentorship really affects people's decision to pursue medicine. Mm -hmm. And I always think about it like this, right? Again, I always bring up Nigeria because were awesome you know <laughs> but representation for me was completely different yes again everyone looks like me it was never far-fetched from my mind to achieve like medicine because all the doctors that i saw looked like me yes. right and i think when i was listening to that documentary or watching that documentary it made me like more cognizant of the fact that perhaps my american counterparts that look like me are at a disadvantage because Again, those numbers that I just showed you, right? Like, mm -hmm. how can you achieve something if the majority of the people that you're interacting with in this healthcare system don't look like you? Like, how do you achieve mm -hmm. something where you, you, you know, it's so hard for you to see? And even outside of the healthcare context, you know, there's always like, you know, this is the first woman to do this. This is the first black person to do this. Like, that's such, we're in an era first, which is great, but also disappointing sometimes. Yes. Because you're like, man, like, everyone is achieving things in Nigeria, they're all black. So, I guess, can you talk a little bit about the impact of mentorship or how, you know, seeing yourself in your dad, you know, yes. like he was achieving. Like his dad, they were in, in medicine. You said they were both, like your dad, your grandpa was a biology, biology. teacher. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So how how has having your dad, or I don't know if you and your dad ever talk about this, how did he also kind of achieve for medicine yeah, in an it, era that I'm sure was pretty tricky to Yes, achieve. yeah, as you can, I mean, my dad was in elementary school during integration mm -hmm. so the first time when he was put into a, yeah, a class beforehand his experience was all black people in yeah. his elementary school in his kindergarten class but then was meshed in with with the white community after yeah. that and we we have had conversations about that and certainly about his experiences uh going through mm -hmm. uh, going through medical school as well and really all his training his living his life as a black man in a white coat 
But to, to get to your question and the importance of mentorship, and I think this is something that I hoped came out of the film where there are so many different ways that you can impact and hopefully improve those statistics yeah. that, that we saw. But this is something that I think everyone should latch behind. It's um, it, In the film, I think the line they use is you can't be what you can't see. Right. And so what are the things that we can do to ensure that there are mentors and people reaching out to folks in the younger black community who are coming up through the pipeline, coming up through the ranks. Um, and that's something I think I, I've really latched onto and people here that I've, Kevin Mitchell, for example, has been a huge advocate for me and an incredible mentor and liaison. And a big piece of that I think is because he's in academics. Okay. Cause not only think about, okay, how many black men are in medicine, but how many black men are in academic medicine? That's true. To become a doctor, you have to go through residency. Yeah. You have to go through medical school. And if all of the black physicians are in private practice or out in these areas where <laughs> medical students and people aren't exposed to, yeah. then you may not see people who look like you. So I think a big part of that is thinking through, and again, academics isn't necessarily for everyone. I yeah. think people have great reasons why they would choose private practice, why they would choose to work abroad, why they would choose to stay in academics. Yeah. But I think it's incumbent on those of us who are interested in staying in academic medicine to be very thoughtful and our leaders to be very conscientious with the recruitment and retention of people who are minorities, who are black, who are Latino, yeah. to keep them in academics because they can serve as huge mentors for those people coming through the pipeline. Yeah. I feel like you're trying to convert me because in my mind, you know, this residency <laughs> training, this this whole training process it's is just grind. long. It's a grind. <laughs> and I'm just like, you know, come 2020, whatever, I'm out. No, but no, I, th I think you raise a really good point. I think one thing that I know that I don't do well, and maybe it's time or I don't know, I, I need to find ways to reach back into the community myself and say, hey, I am this person in medicine and I kind of want to encourage other people. I think I, again, take for granted the fact that I just grew up surrounded by other people that looked like me. And so yes. there wasn't a lot of outreach, like, hey, aspire for this, you know. Our, our problem in Nigeria was more like, you're a woman, maybe you shouldn't be doing so much. And mm -hmm. I was like, no, I am going to fight against <laughs> this. Um, so I personally need to like reach out um, and do more for the community. Well, well it's not, I think it's, Everyone can't do everything. I'm not true. So you have to find your passion or find what works well for you. Yeah. You know, and and you're also a medicine resident. You're really busy, <laughs> you know? I know. But, but it can mean a lot just finding what you're passionate about. So, for example, for me, it's been working a lot with the medical students. Yeah. And so that's kind of my group where last year we had, you were on the panel, actually, when I invited you, you helped <laughs> I out. Was, wait, yeah, I was. Wait, actually, I do much for the community. I do things. Yeah, no, but it was I'm great. We had a lot of. <laughs> Meharry medical students yeah. and also um, underrepresented minority students at Vanderbilt yeah. where we gave them tips and tricks on how to approach their application. Yeah. So I looked at that more so as it, it was mentorship, but it was coaching yeah. and it's like grooming and fine tuning because we have this great population of really, really talented medical students and how do we get them to put their best foot forward right. so that we can give them insider tips and tricks to where things that were passed along to me mm -hmm. that I've learned also through my experience. So how can I pass that along to help groom them and coach them so that when they go on interview, they can put their best foot forward and be really successful yeah. while also showing off how awesome and badass they are. That's Oh yeah, that's true. It, it was actually a really good panel. It was a fun So I think it's like little things like that, but can make it, I mean, I got a couple of emails afterwards, even at the end of interview season where one of the med students reached out and was like, man, your all's tips for getting ready for zoom interviews was actually very helpful. Wow. So I think it was good that a few of us who had done zoom fellowship interviews were okay. able to pass that on. So 
you know, I bring that up to say, A, you are doing stuff, and B, I, I just encourage people to find their niche where if it is going to local community centers and working with children and kind of younger earlier on in the pipeline to be like, oh, yeah, here's someone who's black who's a doctor. that I, That's something I can aspire to be someday. That makes a difference. If it's working with medical students, that makes a difference. If you are higher up, whether you're black, white, brown, whatever color, yeah. but you're thinking about recruiting and retaining graduates into early faculty members, not only how are you going to recruit them to be here, but how are you going to support them yeah. once they get here? So I think all along that line, there's so much work to be done. Yeah. And one person can't do everything. But if everyone pitches in and thinks about what part can they contribute to, it will make a big difference. One of the things that you alluded to earlier is talking about dealing with some uncomfortable situations yeah. in the workplace. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, we're in the society that we're in, and there are just certain things that are said directly, indirectly. Yeah. I'll give you a couple examples of things that I have experienced in residency. And I don't think it's unique to just this residency program. It could happen anywhere. Yeah. You know, number one, I remember as an intern, I had a patient who told a care partner to go back to where she came from. And she, this person is of African descent. She had a different accent. And I had to mm. go in there and address this. I'm like, what do you mean? And you know, this patient's wife is like, no, we're not racist. And I was like, you cannot tell people they're sorry things. You have to apologize. And you know, and it annoyed me too that we're still in that situation. Yeah. I've had a patient that had very, very offensive tattoos against people that look like us. Yeah. You know, this was in the ICU. And it was me and another black male resident that were like the providers for the night. And I was like, well, I guess you're stuck with us. You're gonna have to live with it. Yeah. And I know we've also had like a mutual patient who also had a really offensive tattoo. I couldn't tell if he favored Patrick over the both of us. I yes. kind of feel like he did, yes. you know? And so like, how do you handle situations where they're either overt racist stuff happening, mm -hmm. being said, either like overtly or just like subacutely? Like how do you handle it and how do you, I don't know, well, how do you do it? Yeah, Help. well there, there's definitely not, you know, there's so many, like you said, different situations that may occur and it, it can be macro, very aggressive yeah. and big, like you said, but it can also be micro where there was even one time I recall someone was like, asking someone who had an accent, they said, where are you from actually? Oh, and I'm God. sure you get that. It's like, oh, where are you really from? <laughs> I am from. Like, how do you, <laughs> how do you even answer that question? I know. And I remember getting that too, like when I was speaking Spanish one time, they're like, oh, this guy must be like Brazilian or he must be from South America. Yeah. He's got green eyes. He's got an afro. He's got dark brown skin. And like, where are you really from? Or where, I hate those questions. I know. So it, 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 and it may seem benign, but those little things that add up over time yeah. can be pretty, can be pretty scarring and can be pretty big. Yeah. So I think there's a like PC answer to how to address this because there actually is, you know me, I'm a big data guy and yeah. I love talking frameworks. Please. There's, there's an article that uh, was written by a group of minority physicians, I think it was in 2016 or 2017 in the New England Journal of Medicine. Okay. It said how to deal with racist patients. Oh, really? It's real. So I'll send it to you. Please send it this. to me. Yes. And there are actually a lot of things I disagree with the article because it only addresses, I think, overt macroaggression. Okay. If someone is blatantly racist, which is... Although it does occur, I don't think it's the vast majority of the situations yeah. that are encountered. But it talks through an algorithm going through, okay, how acutely ill is the patient trying to uh, evaluate why the patient is feeling that way. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the first steps that can be applied to any situation is yeah. just acknowledging it and being like, hey, what you said was racist or yes. what you said was wrong. Tell me, like, why do you feel that way? What are you thinking? Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to just blatantly ignoring it and that 
again, stems and leads to a whole host of other problems. Yeah. But then also saying it's inappropriate and wrong yeah. is the other thing. So not only acknowledging it, but working to correct and say, like, you are not aware in, in a place where it should be free of discrimination. Yeah. It should be free of racist talk. And you can't speak to providers. You can't speak to care partners. You can't speak to other humans like that. You can't do that. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, I think it, the bit, one of the biggest things that I've learned through experience of times where I, I think maybe handled it okay, but then also times I've handled it poorly with, like, like I alluded to earlier, where maybe derogatory comments towards women providers yeah. that are there. Uh, acknowledging and addressing that it's inappropriate is, I think, one of the first uh, initial steps. But then also working with the patient because we have a, um, we all said the Hippocratic Oath that we have a duty to treat. Yes. That we're there to provide care, to heal, and to help. Uh, and so working to peel back those layers and try and uncover, okay, this is uncomfortable, but why, why are you addressing or why are you feeling that way can sometimes I think lead to repaired relationships or yeah. a better understanding of why a person may have reacted that way. Mm -hmm. doesn't make what they said right. Doesn't yeah. make, it doesn't give justice to what they said. Um, but I think it hopefully, in addition to addressing saying it's wrong in that moment, can repair and you, we can move forward from there with that relationship. I have to agree. I mean, or admit that sometimes I don't handle it well. And we don't get trained. Yeah. It's not easy. Yeah. So it's such an emotionally charged situation. Just like angry for the rest of the day. You're yeah. just like, oh my gosh, I'm here to help you. And yeah. now you've said all these things to me. And why am I here? You know, but you know, one thing kind of going back to the, um, to the documentary that we, that we watched yes. and the debriefing session, I think, I have to admit, you know, I think there's a fatigue that comes around with all these debriefing sessions for me and probably why I didn't show up. I want these stats when I put it out there to not only like move people that look like you or people that look like us, I want everyone to share in that like, these are horrible numbers, right? Yeah. And if you're current, if you're constantly being that black person, like having all this conversation at work, I don't want to get the reputation that like, oh, you know, Adesol is just here and she's being really difficult to work with. And sometimes I've, I've been to a lot of these debriefing sessions where you just feel like you're not being heard slash you don't have the attendance that you want people, you, you would want. And so it just becomes really exhausting, constantly trying yeah. to educate people that are not in the community about the struggles of the community and like trying to get that allyship, right? Because I think that's also really important. I mean, if we say there are only 3.1% or 2.9% now that are black males, like what are the rest of the population doing? Like they should also be trying to help black people. Yeah. And so when we have these debriefing sessions, I just get fatigued because I'm just like, you know, well, I know that people are going to show up. And so I intentionally decided not to show up because I just didn't want to have that conversation. My question now is how do we try to move that conversation along? Because you want that allyship. Like how do you de-exhaust yourself if that's a word de-fatigue yourself yeah. and constantly try to talk to other people because we just need more people to also you know join together and try and help us recruit more black men into medicine yeah you know it's and you bring up such a, a good point of this fatigue this burnout this exhaustion yeah. there's an, an interesting kind of parallel article in business that, that i just read i'm kind of like in my free time i'm really <laughs> obsessed with like the stock market and business but yeah. there is this business review article that spoke about burnout in the Zoom era among black employees and okay. how much higher it is because a lot of them working in corporate America are subject to their, to their 
higher ups being mostly white men. Yeah. And so now they had to fit in, code switch, mm-hmm. acclimate to that environment and work. But now with Zoom, that's infiltrated their home to where they can't feel like they're being themselves at home. To yeah. where people in the community who feel like they have to change the way they talk, the way they sit, the way they address and do things. And to where home used to be a safe space, but it wasn't anymore during yeah. the Zoom era. And it was interesting because thinking about that parallel where there are people who might show up to these conversations time and time again, but if you don't see the needle moving, yeah. then it's so tiring. So you feel like, why do I need to, to do that? And I think there's a lot of people in the community who take the approach that, okay, I'm done trying to convince, trying to get allies. I'm just going to try and uplift the community yeah. myself. And I think that's a, a great and a very empowering and powerful approach too. Uh, but I think clearly we, we still need the help of, if it's only 2% of black men that are in medicine, the other 98% of people aren't black men in medicine. Right. So we have to win over and get those people to help and become allies. And it's not in, this is not the start. Of, we're having this conversation today. <laughs> I we're clearly not the first that it was going on when my, my dad was in medical I school and in residency. It's, it's been a long, long conversation and it's not going to be a quick fix, but it's certainly one that's worth fighting for. All right, so final serious question for you here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I put you in a hot seat this entire time. Yeah. Um, but this is a really good conversation. I, yeah. I'm learning so much from you. And, um, you know, I'm not leaving this conversation unchanged in my mind. So mm-hmm. I really appreciate you coming here. But what do you think overall? I think we've kind of alluded to a lot of these things. But what do you think overall we need to do like to increase the number, to fix the number mm-hmm. um, in general? I think it takes commitment first from everyone. So... Not, not just from the black community, but from everyone who's in medicine to uh, strategize and think through what are the structural and systemic barriers that have led to where we are now? How do we remove those? And then everyone, again, this is, seems like such a beast to tackle. Like, yeah. How are we going to do this? And I think it's piece by piece where if you find your passion or find your area where you can make a difference, where again, if it's just mentorship with um, medical students mm-hmm. and working with underrepresented minorities there, then that can be it. Yeah. If it's working earlier in the pipeline, uh, going to elementary schools and working there, that can do it as yeah. well. Or if you're in administration, again, whether you're black, white, not thinking through, okay, what are ways that we can work to retain and not only retain people of color in medicine and keeping them in the academic ranks, but also uh, supporting them when yeah. they get in early faculty positions. Mm-hmm. and helping them feel supported, um, ensure that they are successful in their early career. It's, I mean, it's a, takes a hurt effort. It, yeah. It's going to take a whole, whole lot of work and a whole lot of intentionality in order to improve this issue. Do you feel supported right now? You're supporting me so much. <laughs> <laughs> my, one of my biggest fears I'd say is there's no doubt that whenever I have kids, whenever that is like, they'll, they'll grow up here yeah. and we'll have a very, different life upbringing just again nature of where i grew up right and i always struggle with oh my god like what am i gonna do what am i gonna do i'm already stressing about like kids that i don't have guys something, <laughs> something is wrong with me <laughs> but you know i i think a lot of times or i think like we, we need to start pretty young right whether or not my kids want to go into medicine at least they'll have me to like guide them through that process yes. but i definitely think that you know me we need to figure out ways to one start exposing kids to not just medicine like a lot of different really successful fields 
from really, really young in life, right? Yes. Going into the community and just like giving everyone, like you can reach for the moon, you can reach for the stars, like here are all these different options and just like exposing people to medicine um, or medicine, different fields and giving that awareness. And like you're saying, supporting people through. I've been so fortunate in life for whatever reason I've had you know, organic and inorganic mentors that I'm like, hey, Adesol, this is great for you. Do this, do this. And just kind of having more mentorship program again from a really young age, because I don't think any of us get to anywhere, you know, in our careers right now without having other people guide you totally and, agree. you know, mentor you through all of these things. And so mentorship is really important. And saying it's okay or like you know normalizing people's experiences whether we like it or not my experience your experience in medicine is going to be completely different from someone of caucasian descent right mm -hmm. and so if i was venting to somebody and they're like wow that really happened to you that doesn't give me you know it doesn't motivate me to want to share my experiences but like creating safe spaces and just like normalizing people's experience like i'm so sorry that happened to you and trying to figure out ways especially people that are not of the community figure out ways to change the system mm -hmm. you know so that it's more beneficial not being that person um who when a patient says something like derogatory to you know a resident and intern like i want to be that resident and it's like that is not okay you yeah. know because i think there's always times when we're like oh yeah this is awkward you know maybe we'll talk about it as a team outside but we'll never confront the patient about it and like trying to make the safe the space really safe for everyone and just like acknowledging that you know, we have a harder time, but we are all collectively trying to make this experience better for you. Yeah. I think those would be the things that I would say can help. Again, I'm not a black male, but as a black female, I think those are the things that well, I would eloquent help. Eloquent and you <laughs> help motivated me. me. So that was good. I loved hearing it. Serious conversation aside, I've really enjoyed talking to you, but yeah. I know we are going to play a game to play wrap game. it all up. You're going to play a game. You could have, you know, dinner with someone or let's say two people, okay. you know, living or dead who okay. would you invite and why oh. so this is a good question as well and you know i think that in choosing this you have to think not only would you want to talk with this person one-on-one -on -one, but mm -hmm. what would the conversation with you mm -hmm. three be like okay so it may sound i don't want to say boring but uh, i think i would really love conversation with me okay my dad okay. and barack obama because those are two people <sighs> that i've like looked up to so much my entire life that's not I, I boring at all. What? That's not boring at all. No, I yeah. think it would be a, uh, well, it's just a, you know, if you think of all the history, there are obviously tons of impressive yeah. people, but uh, my dad and I always have great conversations and I respect and look up to him so much and same with God, how cool it would be to meet Barack. Yeah. It would be so, so cool. And he's just such an impressive and such an inspiring individual. Barack so Obama. I think it would be awesome to sit at a dinner table, yeah. put some bourbon and hang out with those guys. I think it would be amazing. I feel like I would want to be like the fly on the wall in that conversation. It would be, it would be amazing. Yeah. yeah. I would have. What about you? The other Obama. I would there have Michelle. Michelle. That's awesome. <laughs> I would have Michelle, and I would have my mom too. Oh, yeah, it would awesome. be. It would be like I think it would be a very um, phenomenal conversation because I remember reading Michelle Obama's book, and like there were parts of like, am I Michelle? I don't know. Yes. And she just has so much. Like she's just such a phenomenal woman. And then you know, my mom's deceased, but she. I had 12 years with her and I think those are still so critical in my own life right now. It would just be all, like awesome to just kind of like chat with her and tell her, Hey, this is what I'm doing. Is, and I think the three of us will be, now. I know. Yeah. I think the three of us will have a really good time. That's awesome. Yeah.
That would be fun. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for that, coming that by. Was so, this was so much fun. This is uh, good. Lots of good conversation. Yeah. And honestly, great to see you as always. I know. So, great to see you, too. I'm missing you around. Call me with any card stuff. <laughs>